Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. I didn't realize until I went back to look again this week that Luke and Matthew both share Jesus' frustrated response to this idea that some of us can judge the weather, but we can't identify God's presence when it's standing right in front of us. But Luke and Matthew don't tell it the same way at all, and both responses that they share get left out of what we read in church on Sundays. I don't know why that is or or what that might mean. All I know is that Matthew's version that we looked at last week was all about what we try to add to Jesus' presence in the world. And Luke's that we'll look at today is about what we love to avoid, conflict. And both of them, both versions, are about the power that we give others over the direction of our lives. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go back and give it a listen before you listen to today or listen to them out of order, whatever works for you. Also, if you haven't checked out Good Faith Media's new narrative podcast, A Second Language, about Second Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, it's worth a listen. It's out now, and you should check it out after you listen to today's episode. Thanks for listening to God Knows Where. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy today's episode, Two Chairs. A reading from Luke 12. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Thus, when you go with your accuser before a magistrate, on the way make an effort to settle the case, or you may be dragged before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. For most of my childhood, my mom taught preschool. She was the director of a lab school on a university campus, and there was a waiting list a mile long for kids to get in, and and she won't say this, but I will. I know that was because of her, the way that she taught, the gift that she had and still has with tiny humans, and the people she could help them become. There's a reason why parents clamored to get their kids into my mom's classroom. Did she bat a thousand? No, she didn't, but I don't think she was far off. There was one thing in her classroom that I've never seen in any other classroom. Off to the side of the room in her classroom, I can still see them sitting there, were these two small wooden chairs facing each other, the talk-it-over chairs. When two kids got into it, like kids do, and were being disagreeable or even mean or just at odds with one another and and causing a distraction and a problem in the classroom, the solution my mom employed with them was to bring them both to the talk-it-over chairs. The only rule there, as far as I remember, was that they couldn't leave until their conflict was resolved. An adult might help them think through the questions or choices they'd made or choices they wanted to make, but it was up to the kids to decide between themselves how to solve their problem. And hanging over them the entire time was the pull to get back to playing and being with the group over in the rest of the room. The sooner they could agree to share or trade or or whatever they needed to do to right what was wrong, the sooner they could get back to having fun. There was no heavy hand of judgment. There was no isolated timeout. There was no anger. Just problem solving between the two folks who had a problem. And it worked. 
I feel like we need more talk it over chairs in more places for all of us, children and adults, especially adults. And turns out, Jesus did too. It's pretty clear why we never read this in church. It's enough like Jesus' instruction for conflict resolution in Matthew 18 to make us think that they're talking about the same things, but they aren't. Here, Jesus doesn't prescribe what we should do and the order in which we should do them in order to take someone who's done something wrong before the church. Here, Jesus simply asks, can you not judge what's right for yourselves? He doesn't want us to look to some external authority for what is right and wrong. He wants us to pay attention to our relationships, to what we know we've done or not done, and to know what the right response should be to fix it. We should be able to judge what's right and what's not without any outside interference. But we don't really like to do that, do we? We want there to be a measuring stick. We want there to be a scale to balance, a rule or a law that says if you drive this fast or if you steal that much or if you hurt someone this badly, here is your punishment. We want a judge or a teacher or anyone else to tell us who's wrong and who's right and to move on. But why? Why do we have this need, this desire for someone else, a third party, to determine what's best for us? Why can't we work it out for ourselves? Part of it, I think, is because we don't trust ourselves to be able to solve our own conflicts. We don't trust someone who has wronged us to admit their fault. And if we're being honest, we don't often trust ourselves to admit our own faults either. It's no fun being wrong or being the reason for someone's pain, and we've always got a reason to explain why we did something, whether or not it hurt somebody. I mean, how many times have we been told that if we get into a car accident, especially one that we caused, that we are not to admit fault? Because if we do, our insurance company will deny any claim we make, and we will end up owing a lot of money to fix something that we damaged. And our kids do this, too, in their own way. That's why they tattle. They want someone else to solve the problem, to pass judgment, to name a punishment, because they're still learning how to communicate and cooperate, and they want a guide. They need someone at that moment to tell them what's right and what's wrong. And we, whether we're kids or adults, it doesn't matter. We do all of this, not just because we hate conflict, but because even more than hating conflict— We hate addressing conflict. We would rather have someone else make the call for us and risk the relationship never heal just so we can get on with our lives than we would to take it upon ourselves to do the hard work, to admit our own fault, to consider the situation and the relationship and to walk with each other through the pain and ultimately to strengthen our bond with the person on the other side of the conflict. I think another part of this is that we think a third party will bring objectivity and an objective observer will be fair and unbiased to determine the right decision. And objectivity is what we need in order to properly resolve a conflict. But objectivity doesn't bring healing. Objectivity in conflict resolution creates a you must type solution instead of a I'm willing 
And anyone who's ever been in any relationship knows how much better a conversation full of I heards and I felts goes than one riddled with you dids and you saids. Outsourcing resolution turns conflict into competition. Competitions can be won or lost. And if there's a chance that I can win or you can lose, we will always be opponents. We will never be in a relationship together. And if there's one thing that is clear in this advice Jesus offers, it is that finding a way to be or stay in relationship is of utmost importance. It may not always be possible, but it's worth the effort to try. And to truly resolve our conflicts and to be able to move on from them in a deeper, stronger relationship with others, we have to participate in their resolution. We can't ship it off to a third party. I heard John Fogel call this elaborative discipline the other day. He's making the argument that kids should participate in determining the consequences of their actions. If they do something wrong, they should participate in determining what they should do to make it right. He argued that doing so does three things. It clarifies that they understand what went wrong. They might not, but bringing them into the conversation instead of handing out a judgment can help them. It's also stickier, he says. A decision they make is easier to remember than one they got from you that they definitely want to forget. We feel that more. And lastly, it prioritizes the relationship, not just the punishment. It allows for conversation and figuring out how we're going to work this out together, even though it may be hard. And all of that can lead to less tension and fewer conflicts down the line, which is better for everyone. To truly bring healing to our conflicts, healing has to be felt. It can't simply be spoken or heard. If any attempt at healing a conflict is only spoken, It's as meaningful to us as Jim Halpert telling Michael Scott that in order to declare bankruptcy, he has to declare it forcefully and vocally. And when Michael yells, I declare bankruptcy, it makes no difference in Michael's financial life. Here in Luke, what first reads like Jesus telling us to make a plea deal with whomever has wronged us is actually Jesus telling us that we've got to be able to work out our differences together so that we can stay connected to one another. And this is the path to reconciliation. It's restorative justice. Jesus' question asks us to prioritize our relationships, to mend bonds that are broken between us, to seek justice that isn't just handed out, but rather invited in. This way of addressing conflict, participating together in its resolution, doing the hard, uncomfortable work of tackling the problems in our way, only with the people shackled by those problems. It brings better results, not just for ourselves, but for the whole community. When I was a pastor, there was a member of our church who saw a lot of the world differently than me. I don't think I could name a topic, theological, political, otherwise, you name it, that we saw in the same way. He'd been around a lot longer than I had. His experience of the world was different than mine, and on more than one occasion, 
I received a letter or a phone call from him on a Monday after saying something on a Sunday morning. Whatever the medium, there was always an invitation to talk. He knew that there were two chairs in my office where we could sit and talk. And both of us, we both could have come to those chairs ready to win, armed with arguments and opinions and experiences that told us we were right. But he always framed any quibble he had with me as an invitation. And I'm forever grateful for that. He had questions. He wanted to hear more from me. He wanted to see if we could find common ground. Sometimes we did. Sometimes we didn't. There were times where I desperately wanted to be right, where I desperately wanted to win and to say that I was right and that he was wrong. But more often than not, there were times where we figured out that we were both right and we were both wrong, and it was going to be better for the entire community if we figured out how to work together. And even when we didn't find common ground, in just simply searching for it together, we kept finding each other. We kept those lines open between us, so that when there were disagreements down the line, when the next disagreement popped up, we knew we could work through it together. When we tackle conflict this way, we don't ask anyone else to take sides. We don't triangulate the problem to draw others in or to win an argument or to divide a community. We transform a relationship instead. And every relationship that is transformed in these ways helps transform other relationships too. As we begin to navigate the conflicts that will come up there in similar ways, And it creates a domino effect where better, healthier, stronger relationships create better, stronger, healthier relationships all around us until all we have are better, stronger, healthier relationships with one another. It's not easy. It's not easy to do that. We haven't gotten it all the way right yet. It's not easy to be headed in one direction and to stop and go down an entirely different path. It's not easy to be headed to the judge to get a decision and to decide with the person you've wronged that we're going to figure this out together. But like Robert Frost wrote, taking that path can make all the difference. But to do so, it requires us to listen. It requires us to admit where we are wrong, to name to the very people who have hurt us how they have hurt us, and to trust that they will hear us. To do this, it requires us to commit not to winning arguments, but to prioritizing our relationships with each other over everything else. And after all, what else do we have? God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife, Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family, and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It'll mean the world to me, and it'll help more people find 
God knows where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, and your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.